She cheats on you with a basketball player. Hope that she Kim Kardashian the way You know the voice, and you're going to know it, by the way, when you hear um, her first single from her next album. The album is called Heavy Lifting, but the first single is available right now on uh, Spotify. Something I, I wouldn't have said had I interviewed her in the mid-90s, that's for sure. It's called I Hope She Cheats. Um, you'll know the voice instantly when you hear the song and when we talk to her right now. She's playing two nights at Massey Hall. We'll tell you when those dates are, but it's really exciting in Toronto to talk to Torontonian Amanda Marshall. It's great to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. What Now, have you sort of always remained in Toronto? Have you been here? Have you been there? Is, has it mostly been a, a Toronto residence for you as an adult? Yeah, Toronto has always been my home base. I've lived a bunch of different places, usually depending on where I'm working. I've lived in LA, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, it sort of depends on where I'm recording, but I've always I've always maintained a home base. And yeah, I love Toronto. I grew up here and and I'll always I think I'll always stay here. Would you like to run for mayor? Because everybody else is. I don't <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't it's not that's not kosher with a rock and roll uh, lifestyle or touring schedule. I just I'm sorry, my cup is a little full right now. I just did an interview with an Ottawa outlet who asked me if I'd like to be the uh, nightlife coordinator for Ottawa. So I'm a little backed up at the moment. <laughs> well, we're, 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 yeah, it's weird how we are. We're all looking for good people to be politicians. It's, it's <laughs> funny how that works itself out. Um, you started working on heavy lifting before the pandemic and, and did you kind of have most of it set to roll out? I, I, we're always asking these pre, during, post pandemic questions. Was most of it where you wanted it? And then were there some tweakings during our, our downtime, if you will? Yeah, it, I mean, this record is was sort of two decades in the making, which sounds insane when I say it out loud, but it really was. And I would put it away and take it, you know, take it out and put it away and take it out. It was uh, it was mostly completed by around uh, late 2019, and we were getting ready to get rolling and you know go back out on the road and stuff. And then the pandemic happened, and I realized you know nobody's really waiting for this, and I wanted everybody to feel obviously you know secure and safe about touring. There was a whole uh, period of time where people were kind of up and down and up and down, so I wanted to avoid all that. And because nobody was waiting for it, I thought, eh, I'm just going to wait and ride this out. Um, we didn't tweak anything during the pandemic. And as a matter mm -hmm. of fact, I didn't listen to it during the pandemic at all. And then when we pu I pulled it out, I was overwhelmed at how, with relief at how relevant and how great it still was and how much I still loved it. I thought this is still exactly where I want it to be. It's not a, it's not a record. We're lucky in the sense that it's not a record that's chasing anything. It's not chasing trends. It's not a sort of of the moment record, but it is very, very relevant. It covers a lot of relevant subject material. And it really just sounds like me now so i think it was sort of timeless in that sense i wasn't worried about it at all i think you hit on something because there were artists um artists that were really riding high who who put out an album um either just as the pandemic was beginning but I, i'm sure they record companies themselves were like what do we do we've got this art and we want to share it but you know and i know all our listeners know we went through so many emotional waves we're like I don't want to hear anything happy today. Um, and, and then also, yeah. like, don't bring me down any further than I already am. So all, the, all these artists had these calls to make about what to put out. Yeah, it, it's, I, you know, I don't envy them. I, I watched a lot of it, as, like everybody else did. I watched a lot of that happen. And it's, I mean, it was obviously uncharted territory. I, I myself tend to be, a, you know, a bit cautious when it comes to everything of that kind of, you know, of that nature. If there's a chance to wait, I'll wait. My, my philosophy is, you know, when in doubt, do nothing. So I just sort of... <laughs> I just, I just thought there's no, you know, to, after 20 years, there's, there's no rush. We'll be fine. Everything happens in its own good time. Yeah. Amanda Marshall's joining us. Uh, the album is called Heavy Lifting. She'll play Massey Hall June 16th and June 17th. If you're listening down the road, the 401 in London, she's at Budweiser Gardens the very next night on June 18th. Um, 
Have you been back to see live music? Because I can't get enough of it right now. When when you get something sort of stripped away from you for two and a half, three years, I went to uh, to see Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark last May. And it oh, was wow. like my very first concert when I was 13 years old again. <laughs> I think no matter how old we are, we all were like, we've all missed live music so, so much. Yeah, I'll be honest. I haven't mostly only because I've been too busy with what with ramping up this record and getting ready to go back out on the road myself. Mm -hmm. So I have not been out to see live music. Um, I'm going to try in my downtime this summer to get out and see some stuff because I too have missed it. The last sort of really live experience that I had, I think was, it was probably the summer of 2019. Actually, well, we did a show just as the pandemic got started. We did a, a private show at West, but the, my, my last time seeing anybody else play live would have been, I think 2019 when we were on a bill with uh, Adams, Brian Adams. Yeah. West. So yeah. So I, you know, like everybody else, I can't wait. Um, the, the time you've documented the time, there were some, you know, uh, management tussles, there were some, uh, but, but I, I wonder when you get away from it for a while, I think it's like any other career. You're like, oh, this is, this is the other side of this. You've always been a musician at heart. You put everything into your work. Um, were there times when you didn't miss the, the grind of album tour, album tour? Were there times when you didn't miss it? Well, first of all, I really like the way you put that management tussle. That's very, that's the sexiest, uh, sexiest. Well, you're here, so you kind of won. It took, it took 15 <laughs> rounds, but you won, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we came off the, I came off the back end of a, of a touring cycle in 20, I think it was 2002. It was my third album. Everybody's got a story. And I, and basically the short answer is I fired my manager and it just triggered this mm -hmm. like. 12 year, if anybody's ever tried to get divorced from somebody who doesn't want to get divorced and, you know, and, and just will not let go, that's basically what happened. And I, um, you know, in the beginning, I was convinced like everybody is when anything like that happens, you're convinced that you're the only person it's ever happened to or ever will happen to. And it's a very alienating, traumatic thing. And you think, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. About halfway through, I realized, you know what, this is the absolute best thing that has ever happened to me. Because number one, it gave me uh, on a professional level, it gave me absolute creative freedom. Nobody was waiting for this record. I had no expectations to meet. I wasn't dealing within the sort of infrastructure that that necessarily springs up around you when you do my job. There is a whole infrastructure and kind of industry that springs up out of necessity around you. And absent that infrastructure, I was able to do whatever I wanted, which was fantastic. Um, did I miss the grind of being on the road? A little bit. You know, mm -hmm. musicians find themselves, I think, at loose ends a lot of times when they come when we come off the road, because you're kind of you're used, you get used to that, that pattern, you know, for a, a period of time. I have a friend who always emails me when we're done or when he's done on a tour and he's like, you know, I'm home now. And like, I left my shoes outside the door and nobody came to shine them. And no one brought me breakfast in bed this morning. <laughs> there's no catering in my, you know, there's no catering in my house. I hate it here. When are we going back out on the road? And that happens to a lot of people. It's why a lot of musicians be, honestly become kind of depressed when they're not mm -hmm. on the road. I don't have that. I'm kind of happy wherever I am. I love being on the road, but mm -hmm. Uh, I also, th for the first time, you know, wrote and produced this record myself. And that was a huge change. I made a record in 1998 with Don Was, who I met through a soundtrack that I did. And he was someone I had always wanted to work with. He was really a personal hero of mine as a producer. He's produced Bonnie Raitt and The Stones, a bunch of people. And about halfway through that record, Don turned to me one day and said, you know, you could do this. You could produce your own records. And at the time, it seemed like a pipe dream because writing and producing to me and performing seemed like two or three separate distinct lanes. And there seemed like this incredible amount of mystery around producing. For me, it turned out that it was a really organic thing. I sort of fell backwards into doing it. I was about 
you know, halfway to three quarters of the way through the record before I realized, wait, damn, I I made a record. Like I, mm-hmm. I, this is, this is what the job is. I produced the record. So, you know, I, I really felt um, empowered maybe after the fact, but I felt empowered to do whatever I wanted. And, you know, and once it was done, I kind of didn't care what anybody else thought. I was so happy with it. The record mm-hmm. sounds like me now, which is precisely what I wanted. You you talk about the a producer, and I think you've always you know had these collaborations, songwriting collaborations with with people who just sort of transcend. Don was like so in one year he does the B fifty twos comeback, and he does Bonnie's big album. Like you could hear a thing called Love and you know Love Shack or Rome on the radio, and you'd be like, well, those are two great songs back to back, but they're totally they're considered different genres. They have totally different feels and vibes to them. And yet a great song is a great song and a great product producer can do all of that. Absolutely. You know, Don told me once I said, I asked him once, I said like, you know, you work with, you work with such a diverse array of people Mm -hmm. and there is, you know, I don't mean to insult you, but there isn't really a Don was sound. I mean, you pick up a Phil Spector album and you're like, okay, that's a Phil Spector record. There are a lot of other producers that I can immediately identify as, you know, that's, that's that dude's sound. Don doesn't really, Don doesn't have that. And he said, because my job is to get out of the way. My job is to set it up so that you can do your best at what you do and to point out to you things maybe that you're missing about what your best is. But otherwise, my job is to stand aside and let it happen. And that really resonated with me. I thought, you know, that is, first of all, it's a real um, it's a real ego uh you know, hit. I mean, that's that's somebody who's really willing to like put their own ego aside in their job. And there's so much ego in creative, you know, in creative involved in creative, the commercialization of creative endeavors. There's so much ego. Everybody wants to have their piece of what you're doing. And so for a guy like that to be to be uh, self-aware enough to know that what his gig really is, is just to like set it up and step aside and get out of the way. That was a huge lesson for me. Um, and it's something that I really carried through on this record. Billy Mann is another guy that I worked with in um, 2000 for Everybody's Got a Story. Billy is a brilliant vocal arranger. Mm-hmm. And what I stole from him was his innate ability to add you know, a musical backdrop to a lead vocal, which is really, really hard to do because you can ruin a record with, you know, with an overwrought background part or too much or too not enough. I've had that experience too. So this record was really a, a sort of an amalgamation of all the things that I have been able to steal from other yeah. great people that I've worked with through the years. And to have the time to do it and to make mistakes and to come back and fix them or change stuff. That was invaluable to me. Wow. Amanda Marshall's our guest uh, playing Massey Hall on June 16th, June 17th on Toronto today. When you sit with a songwriter, you have um, you got two two of my uh, favorites um, for sure. And Eric Bazillion, because I'm a big Hooters fan and you worked with him. <laughs> And then Dean, like, I, I, you know, I love the Arrows stuff. I love. And so those big songs on that first album, there's Dean McTaggart. I wish I could have managed the Arrows or been in the Arrows when I was 13. If I could reunite any 80s band from Canada, Amanda, honestly, it'd be the Arrows. I'd, I'd like play in the, in my backyard. I'd beg them to play. But when you sit down and, and write these songs with these songwriters, is chemistry instantaneous or because I'm sure there's partnerships and you're like, yeah, you go home and then you're like, I'm not sure. Does it take time or is it very much snap of the finger? We got something here. 
Um, it's, it's a bit of both. I mean, you know, it, it, one of the things that has always, I think, been kind of a stumbling block for me in collaborating with other people is I'm really, I mean, I know I'm very gregarious and I'm very, I have a very kind of a bullion enthusiastic personality, but I'm really kind of an extroverted introvert. I mean, I'm really kind of shy and, and I'm, and like everybody, nobody wants to make mistakes in front of people they don't know very well. So I think it's easy to be intimidated by other, by the presence of strangers you know it's it's easy to be intimidated by songwriters you don't know and you're in this room with a bunch of people you don't know or maybe with just one person you don't know very well and you're trying to make this thing happen um i was exceedingly lucky with my first record because i was thrown into this kind of pool of um, Canadian expats mostly who were living in Los Angeles at the time and they had all worked together. So they had a vibe. They all kind of had their, you know, their own setup going on. And I kind of stepped into the middle of that. And so I had a bunch of very willing mentors and willing guides. Um, I've been in situations where it's incredibly uncomfortable. I've had lots of, you know, I've written lots of songs with lots of people that have never seen the light of day mm -hmm. because it just wasn't happening. Um, and that can be for a lot of reasons. It can be that the person works a different way than you do. Uh, I've had situations a lot of times where the person, you know, people might have like their own specific vision for what they think you're about. And so they're trying to tailor their thing to you, which kind of makes it hard for it to happen organically. You know, it, it kind of makes it hard for the actual song to shine through because they're so busy trying to write something that they think is going to be a track on your record that, <laughs> that you know, that it's ruining kind of the vibe of the song. <laughs> like, you know, so it, it's difficult. It's difficult. It can be really tough. But then there are other times where it just flows. Dark Horse was one where like Dean and I remember sitting in my little furnished apartment in LA with Dean and like, you know, he had this idea and and I want there was a vibe that I wanted to bring to it. The song is really for me uh, an ode to that period of time in my life where I was moving out on my own. I was I had a boyfriend my parents didn't like very much, and there was this conflict and friction. And so for me, that's what the song was about. He was able to kind of to take that, and we were able to meld that into the story he was telling, which was fantastic. I'm 23 when that song comes out. We're close to the same age. And right. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, like that song speaks to everybody who doesn't know how to be an adult yet. It really is. Like that's to <laughs> me. That's the song probably means something totally different to you, but I'm sure you've had people say, This is where I was. This is what it meant to me. But that age group, that you have no idea how to be an adult, but you know you're not a kid anymore and you better figure it out fast. Yeah. You know? 100 percent You hit the nail on the head. And that's really what it was about for me, too. I you know, that's the period of time I was in in my life. I really didn't. I, I was, you know, I was not a girl, but not quite a woman, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> what is um? let's I, I want to ask you about Toronto. What does Toronto look like to you right now? It is it's um without without going too deep into issues. It, it feels like it has more issues than it ever has. There's cost. There's transit. There's getting around. There's people feeling safe. I have to talk about this stuff all the time, but but I want to get your lens as somebody who who sees it through. You're, you've seen a tremendous evolution. You can imagine driving up from London to come up and see you play live or other concerts. It was just like, wow, you're you're in the big city. What's it feel hey. like to you and look like right now? I love Toronto. I've always loved Toronto. Toronto, like every you know great metropolis, is changing, and I think a lot of that change is. I mean, change is necessary. Obviously, if you don't move forward, you die. So. Mm -hmm you know, change is good. Um, I think with the, with the congestion, obviously with more people comes, you know, more necessary adjustments. I'm, it's kind of, it's kind of an unfair, I'm kind of the wrong person to talk about it because I'm, 
I'm, I'm in it, but I'm also kind of removed. I travel a lot and I don't, you know, I'm not somebody who's on the subway every single day. I'm not somebody who is out in the middle. And I imagine that if you are, uh, you know, uh, a, a Gen Zer or a younger millennial who is trying to make their way in Toronto now, you do not have a lot of the same, um, you don't have a lot of the same infrastructure or a lot of the same kind of support or just a lot of the same kind of freedom to do stuff that I had uh, when I was, you know, as you were saying, when when we were like in our 20s, you know, there was a lot there was a it was, it was a completely different city. And that's kind of been a hard adjustment for me, because sometimes I, I'm out and about and I'm like, man, I remember what used to be there. Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember like, you know what I mean? Like I look at like, like it's great, for example, that the Elmo ha- has come back to life. But there are those of us who sort of remember Spadina and the Elmo and all that stuff. And it's really difficult to describe it to somebody who's never seen it before. Right. New is great. But what you knew is always better. You well, know? I work down on Queens Key, so I'm right from where RPM was, the warehouse was. Uh, then it became Cool House. And you're like the shows you it's just kind of a, you know, a, bl- a blacktop outside. But the shows you'd see there is what you remember. So you drive by. I'm you you're you're playing Massey Hall like thank goodness they saved it and refurbished it like I can't imagine Toronto without Massey Hall it'd be it wouldn't be the same yeah but you know it's really funny I was talking to my dad about this and he's like you know everybody talks about how you know change is changing the city and blah 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 blah. but he's like but you know for me I still remember Yorkville when it was like a hippie haven and you know Gordon Lightfoot and Jimi Hendrix were hanging out and like he's like I so for you, that's not real. But for me, I remember what it was like. Like that was a thing. You know, it, it's yeah. it's a necessary part of the growth of any uh, of any city and things change. And I'm sure that, you know, the people now who are who don't have the things that we have, they'll have something else and they'll tell their kids, oh, it was better when, you know, it was better when we were young. <laughs> we're doing it. Yeah, no, there's no question. We're, we're doing it as we speak. Um, one last thing for you. And it's how it's how people consume music. Obviously, since your last album. I mentioned Spotify, Apple Music, all these companies. Um, the the CD was prominent when you uh, when you hit nineteen ninety five. Now now my my seventeen year old brings home vinyl. I'm it's like a time warp, <laughs> and it's uh, it's PTSD stress about don't let the record scratch, keep them clean, all the like. So it's also different for you. What what do you are there things you look at and you go. Well, I wouldn't, you know, videos don't mean quite as much anymore. We don't sit there and watch much music. Um, how this evolution has some of it been good, some have been challenging. I think it, I think mo- it's mostly good. The stuff that's challenging is really challenging, and so it causes you to sit up and pay attention to it. It's funny you mentioned videos because I was just talking to my manager the other day, and I was like, "This is like this is one part of the current landscape that." sort of escapes me. I, I get that videos are not as important anymore. And I understand why, because mm-hmm. everybody's watching everything on these teeny tiny little screens. I get that. What I don't get is this, this propensity for other visual mediums through which people consume music that aren't music videos, visualizers. I was like, well, like what are you like? What? What? Why? <laughs> um, so a lot of that, a lot of that stuff kind of goes over my head and I'm not like dancing on TikTok. So I, you know, a lot of that stuff, I sort of leave it alone, but what I think is great, obviously, is the um, the degree to which people can consume and find new uh, emerging music easily. I think that's fantastic. And I think it's fantastic that the model for the music business has shifted in such a direction that it has caused a complete 
power flip, you know, labels are not what they were. And I think that's great. I think it's fantastic that people, creative people are more and more and more in charge of their own creative destiny. There's no conversation or conflict anymore to be had really with a label over, well, what should the single be? Or what should it look like? Or what should the artwork be? You're in charge. You can do whatever you want. You are creating content for these companies and they need you and they know that. I mm -hmm. think what we've generally in every art form, I think what the landscape has done that is unfortunate is that the manner in which we consume art now, all art, visual art, music, everything, TV, movies, it has created this perception, I feel, among the population that anybody can do it and anybody can do it well and therefore everyone should do it and it should be free. And that's not true. And, and I think that we've lost a certain, you know, once everybody sees how some of the sausage is made, mm -hmm. people, I think people feel like they too should be making sausages and not everybody should, not everybody can. And most importantly, the people who create art should be properly compensated for that work. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the answer is, but I think that is the, that's the thing, you know, that's the, that is the kind of, that's the con, if you will, the, of the pros and cons. It must. Yeah, it, it must. Like, I, I don't know how to change an exhaust manifold and I don't know how to you know, <laughs> be, a, be a, a Michelin chef. But but uh, yeah, everybody has an opinion on what a good meal is and, and whether that's a that's a nice car or not. You must be like when you see eight million people have listened to Let It Rain on Spotify, that just must be mind blowing. Where are they? Yeah. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> it's funny because there's all these um, there. You know, we have the ability now in the music business to track. I mean, we have the ability to track everything everywhere all mm -hmm. the time. But, it, you know, we have the ability to track listenership and demographics and in a much more granular way than we ever did before. So that's a trip. Like finding out that, you, you know, well, actually, this particular track is trending in, you know, Indonesia. Like, why? Really? Yeah. Okay. I've never been. To, I mean, really? All right. So that is interesting. I think, you know, and it gives you the ability, obviously, to say, oh, well, let's go there and play the music for the people. Right. Or let's tailor this particular thing for this particular audience, which can be fun. I think that's cool. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to see you. Uh, June 16th, June 17th, Massey Hall in Toronto, Toronto's own Amanda Marshall. The album is called Heavy Lifting. Thank you so much for the time and for coming on. Uh, honestly, couldn't have, if this 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 really made my day uh, that you made the time for our audience today. Oh, terrific, Greg. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.